0: Amen. What a great beginning to our service of worship. Thank you for that testimony. And uh, I like the analogy of the pie that never runs out of pieces. There's always a piece of the pie to eat and feast on. Yeah. And grace is a goodness of God that we can feast on and enjoy every day. Thank the Lord for that. Well, um,. As you know, for Communion Sundays, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an interesting book. It's one of the books of wisdom. And in this book, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, he's the preacher, or probably more accurately defined as the, he, he's playing the role not just of preaching sermons, but of a, of a teacher or a professor, a philosopher even, because the way he, he takes us down avenues of thoughts, Um, thinking and observations of the world and he plays different roles to do this so rather than just spoon spoon feeding us truth he makes observations about the world well if this is true it must mean this and if this is true it must mean that and one of the roles that he plays the most frequent is the role of a materialist or a secularist and that is he's looking at life all under the sun That is to say, there's nothing above the sun. There's no deity. Uh, There's nothing else out there. It is only what you see with the observable senses. And he makes the point. He carries that to try to be consistent. He carries that thinking out. And if that's true, then it impacts everything we do, everything we think, and everything we say. It impacts our work and our play, uh, how we spend our money, our behavior, and our values... Because if there's nothing out there, then we are stuck in a meaningless universe. And it's all vanity, vanity, vanity is what he says. So he's good at um, being consistent with if that's what you believe and that's what you think, then this is what it means. And if, if there is nothing out there, there's no God, there's no supreme being of any kind, then we're stuck with what we have right here, what we can see under the sun And the only right conclusion is no matter what I do, no matter how hard I try or even things that I don't do in this life, it doesn't really matter because I don't answer to anybody. And the world, if there's nothing out there, then it's not really going anywhere specific. So all of these efforts and of course King Solomon uh, experimented with things. He had a lot of money as a king. Kings tend to, to have big wallets. And so he could spend his money pursuing different things, comedy, partying, you know, alcohol, women, a power. Then he turns it for good and he builds great structures and he helps society, he blesses people. And he says, in the end, if there's nothing above the sun, what have I really accomplished? Nothing. Somebody else comes after I die, squanders all the money I've saved. If I'm responsible, I no longer have any power over anything I build. And that is kind of a dismal world view of a secularist. But he also occasionally takes on the role of a, a believer. And he challenges us to think along those lines. And so occasionally he'll, uh, he'll interject, well God says this and God does that. And there, therefore there is meaning and there is purpose. And we are accountable and the world is going somewhere specific. So he, he jumps in and out of different roles to teach us wisdom. You might recall in chapter 3 that he talked about seasons. There's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. But he was looking at that from a secularist point of view and a believer's point of view. But from a secularist point of view, it's basically saying history just keeps repeating itself. We are going nowhere. There's no movement. We face the same problems. This happens, this happens, this happens. There's no real solution and then the next generation comes. There's nothing new under the sun. All we are doing is repeating what comes before us. He gives us an example of justice. And that's what I'm going to park on, this idea of justice in the world. And he looks at the world. Solomon is, is one that, is, that he's a deep thinker and he observes things and he takes it in. And he looks at the world and he sees that there are systems or things in place, to promote justice. There are courts in place, there are are judges, there are rulers, different societies have different ways to promote justice. But he notices that in these institutions that societies have built, there's also injustice. So you have an a institution that is specifically for justice, but within that institution, he sees injustices. And then he sees that are institutions or places that are supposed to uh, be righteous that you can reliably count on, and within those, there's a wickedness. And so he observes this, and it's like, you know, what's up with that? What do we do with that? How do we wrestle with uh, the world that we live in, or what I will call middle earth. We, we kind of have to decide what to think about this and what to do about this and the, when we make our observations it's our worldview that will determine what direction we go in and what solutions we'll have, what we think about it and what we think we should do about it. So I want to park here on this topic of justice and oppression for two sermons this communion Sunday and the following, not because it's going to take me that Necessary that long to work through the words of the text. Those are pretty straightforward, but this is one of those rare rare occasions where it's the application that's going to take a lot of time, because if there's anything that our culture is drawn to in this day and age, the, the moment of our time, it is justice and oppression. That's about. Almost everything that we hear from the media these days are tied into the ideas of justice and oppression in our culture. It is our primary focus. And it has become not just about pointing out injustices, but a lot of the clash has come in, def- in the, how people or different groups define what justice is. So it's not just about the injustices themselves, but it's also about how to correct these injustices and what does it mean to walk in justice or to do justice. What does does it mean to be oppressed? Because there's a lot of conflict in defining those terms. Well, in Scripture, Micah 6.8, you know, the Lord is, is so gracious to... To give us um, these verses that are so practical, uh, so reasonable. In Micah 6 8, he, he tells us what is required of you, old man, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. So we are commanded by God as believers, well, as his creatures, but in particular as believers, to do justice. Absolutely, that is something that we have to be uh, practicing. As a discipline in our lives. We need to develop an eye for justice. Or how can we do justice. If we don't understand what it is. Or develop an eye for it. And so this is an important text. For us in this time. Because in order to do it. We have to have a concrete understanding. Of what justice is. If we don't have a concrete understanding. Of what it means to do justice. Then we may find ourselves. Being very passionate about things. And even taking action on things that in the end are promoting more injustice than justice. So it's one of those areas where, you know, decades ago we didn't have to think so hard and clearly it wasn't uh, clear about it, wasn't as confusing about it. Everybody just kind of understood what you were talking about. But I'm sad to say those days are not our days today. There is a lot of confusion about what justice means, how to fight for it, how to correct injustices, and oppression as well. So, therefore, in order to do this text justice, so to speak, I think it's only proper that I'd spend some time and just hold some of the prevailing theories of justice up to the light of Scripture. That's what we do in every area of our life. That's part of uh, Mark and Patty's testimony of how they have progressed in their Christian faith. They're, they're clinging to the Word of God and the grace of God and its reliability. But I think it's only fair that we do that and hold some of the prevailing theories up to the light of Scripture so that we can also um, build our lives and our understanding of society and justice on the rock. So before, I'm going to read the text in just a minute, but before we even dive into the idea or talk about justice before we can even have a conversation with anybody or in our own heads about justice, we have to understand that to understand justice, there has to be a standard for it. In order for us to agree in any way on what justice is or isn't, we have to appeal to some kind of absolute standard of what justice is. We can't talk about an injustice without also agreeing that there's such a thing as justice. So the question becomes, well, what is that justice? What is that justice and what does it look like? How do we know when we're really doing justice? And So we're going to wrestle with that in our text this morning. Our society, I think people as general, I'm guilty as well. I'm very good at pointing out what's wrong with the world. There's so many things wrong with the world and sometimes we wake up moaning, groaning, whining, complaining and, and we're pessimistic about all the things that are wrong with the world and there are a lot of things wrong with the world and our world is broken. But we're not so good as societies or people in agreeing how to fix it or agreeing on what it takes. What, what steps should we take to fix the things that we see? What does, so we can point out the wrong we have a hard time agreeing on what the right is. What's the right picture supposed to look like? Where do we go with this? How do we fix it? And in our society right now, we have a lot. We have different theories on how to fix it, and there's a lot of clashing. And there's and a lot of that's on purpose, because some uh, think that we have to really uh, radicalize things and uproot things in order to make any significant change and get very compassionate about that. But the big question. Ultimately becomes who gets to decide what justice is. Who gets to decide what it's supposed to look like. Now you know that because we are in a church that we're going to lean or I'm going to lean towards God's word to help us with that definition. And I'm going to read some scripture that will help us with that definition. But that's how we form the basis or the foundation of understanding how to work our way through a lot of the cultural things and ideas and philosophies that we are being fed. And so I'm not really going to talk about politics or, or anything like that. I mean, if I do, it's, it's by accident. But it is more the idea coming at it from, it's not just a political thing to be wrestled with. There are ideas and philosophies. And what happens is when there are ideas and philosophies out there, when the church gets in the crosshairs, that's when I think it needs to be addressed. And a lot of these theories... Inadvertently, the church suddenly becomes in the crosshairs of some of these ideas. And so I want to address those so that we can know how to properly fix what is broken by the grace of God. So Solomon in this text, he sees things and he's wondering how to make sense of it all. He sees that, you know, in this world... There are people who are innocent and they do right and they're rewarded for it. There are people who are innocent and do right and they suffer for it. There are people who are responsible and they're rewarded for their hard work and responsibility. And there are people who work hard and they're responsible and they and they face oh, suffering and injustice. And they lose things or they're robbed. And so th- you, you see this whole spectrum of things that transpire. So... Solomon's going to tackle this for us, and he's not going to give us necessarily specific answers, but he's going to give us, I think, profound help in this area. So now we're ready to dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to um, verses 16 and 17, and and then 4, 1 through 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. one, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So basically speaking, Solomon observes two different things here. He draws our attention to it. He sees that there's wickedness in the places of righteousness and there shouldn't be. And then he sees that there is oppression. There's oppression that takes place under the sun. And so that's what he draws our attention to. That's what I want to draw our attention to as well. But in order to consider justice, as I said, I think we have to address the cultural elephant in the room regarding justice and oppression. So our modern culture has a lot to say about these topics. So let me just throw some things out there that all are tied into our modern day understanding of justice and oppression. If you ever heard of the name George Floyd, if you ever heard of the term woke or white privilege or equity or social construct or systemic racism or even toxic masculinity, those are just a few of the terms that are tied in with this modern day struggle for understanding and grasping how to fix what's broken in our our society, and even how to agree on what's broken and what needs to be affixed in our society. So these are all concepts that come from this theory of identifying problems in our culture and our society and coming up with solutions to fix them. So more specifically, it's known as, you'll hear it all the time as... um, CT, critical theory, or critical social theory, or critical racial theory. And so we have this theory here. It came from academia in the in the early 1920s. It used to be just theories that academics threw around, but it, it seeped down into culture. And now, it, lo and behold, it's in our everyday vernacular, these kind of concepts. And this theory is, pop, is purposely rocking the boat because according to this theory, it sees serious injustices that need to be faced in our society. So it makes perfect sense that they are passionate or people that abscribe this theory are very passionate about their work. So what is, exactly is critical theory? What are we, why are we hearing what we hear? Why do there seem to be so much tension? Why do certain things make headlines today and other things go unreported? A critical theory is a philosophy that involves being critical in the prevailing view of society. So in many cases, that means looking closer at beliefs that might favor privileged people over other people. So that's, that's a, um, it's a good start in the sense of looking for equality. But the way that it goes about that is by observing uh, institutions of power or Or people groups that have the power. And what happens is the assumption becomes. And it's based on a lot of assumptions. The assumption becomes that if there's a people group that has power. It's only because. Or more power than others. It's only because. uh, Assumingly they have opposed others. They've kept others down so that they can maintain this power. So the power equals oppression. You can't have power without oppressing others. And in order to fix this dilemma, society needs to be restructured. Uh, it would make sense, according to that way of thinking, that we would restructure society so that there are equal power structures or equal people groups of power out there. Therefore we will eliminate the pushing down or the oppressing the oppressing of others. So the the idea is that if you are at the top, you are at the top because you have oppressed others. It's not the assumption that you're at the top because maybe you worked hard or you deserved it or there was personal merit or effort there. The assumption in this this theory and this way of thinking is that you're there because you have ridden the backs of others to get there. So you... The right thing to do is to step aside uh, and give others a chance. You know, the bottom dwellers, so to speak, give them a chance to rise to the top <clears throat> as well. You will also know that this kind of thinking also lends itself to uh, identifying what we would call minority groups. So they're very good at, defa- at identifying any kind of minority group, any kind of people, because that's a small group. That would au- the assumption is that's automatically being oppressed because you're small, you don't have any power. So we get our whole uh, LGBTQ list with that. They are all they become minority groups that are being oppressed. The whole uh, gender ideology that we are seeing unfold before our very eyes today that's another theory gender theory it's a theory with academia where some smart guys decided that gender it's not God given it's not natural it's not biological it is societal it's fluid and that a- individuals should be able to choose their own gender and the and <clears throat> which inevitably leads to those that do not allow individuals to choose their own gender are opposing them or oppressing them. So you see how quickly this theory puts people in categories of those who are oppressed and those who oppress. It's all about division and categories. <clears throat> so it's, the imposition is considered an injustice. So social activities are being are taking place, we, see, we hear about it in our courts, in our laws, in our politics, and in medicine. Medicine is also trying to accommodate this, our medical profession, accommodate this, and to make it uh, more just, there are given pe- they're giving people lots of opportunities to be the pronoun or the gender that they would like to choose to be, surgeries and so forth. Um, So the individual should get to decide the gender, not the society, society, and not religious beliefs. So that's where the church comes in the crosshairs, not just other people, but the church, because religion has beliefs. You know, our beliefs are based on Holy Scripture. So the way it plays out is that uh, contrary beliefs to this theory become forms of oppression just slips from one thing to the next. So You can't argue with it. You can't hold a different belief because your different belief actually is a form of oppression over the critical theory belief. Now, it's no wonder why there's a lot of clashing and division in our society with this taking place. It's all about oppression. So this is the world unfortunately that we live in now this is what we have to struggle if we were you know Solomon he observes he looks out in his world and he sees things and he sees brokenness and we look out in our world and we see uh, brokenness too now there are new forms of it and 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 evil and and even our own sin you know it comes in different forms but behind it is the same thing you have good and evil at work so in this argument it becomes very convenient that if you disagree with me that you are an oppressor therefore you are unjust that's very that's a very convenient position to hold So these institutions including the church become that anybody that disagrees with it gets in the, put in the crosshairs So what I want to do is rather than doing like a teaching on critical theory I, I only want to address it in terms of popular slogans that have come into being. Things that a lot of us have just, we just see flash across our screen. Screen They might be headlines. You know, they, they might be, uh, I, don't, I don't know that I've seen them as bumper stickers yet. But it's just kind of the popular way to look at things and view things catch words, catch phrases. Everybody's looking for the catch phrase. I'll make a t-shirt out of that kind of thing. So I'm going to look at the very popular phrases that directly affect the church. I'm not going to get into the other realms, but these things directly affect the church and they're being said and there is an element of truth in them, some of them, but they are also extremely uh, dangerously wrong if we think this way and carry it out. I'm going to look at six sayings that are popular out there and address those and hold it up to the light of Scripture so that in an attempt to shepherd us, an attempt to to help us think more clearly because I don't know about you, but sometimes my head spins over all the things that get thrown my way these days with media. So I believe that looking at these popular statements will help us understand what we are up against. And this morning, we're just going to look at one of the six. And it's, the, it's a big one. And if I'm, going to, if I'm going to talk about it all, I'm going to jump in with both feet. And I will warn you that some of these things might make us even squirm a little bit. I don't know. Might make us squirm a little bit. And if it does, I think it's, a, it's indicative of a culture that is censoring to the point where you're only allowed to talk about certain things and you're not allowed to talk about other things. So what is the first, my first point, and that's all that we'll look at this morning and we'll continue this in a month from now so you get a break, a needed break for a month after this. But, um, you know, what's the, what's the modern challenge when we talk about justice? Oh, hold on a second here. Excuse me. Yeah, so oppression, the modern challenge. So oppression, um, according to critical theory, and I'm going to read this definition out of definitions.com. I looked at other ones, and it's just as good as this. So it attempts to lessen the forces that cause disadvantages to certain people. The general goal of critical theory is to enlighten the general public on the issues that can cause alienation and unequal opportunities within a population. I read that and I think that's a great, who wouldn't want to do that? Who, want, who wouldn't want to, to stop inequalities and enlighten people and, and society about issues that cause division and alienation and rob people of opportunities? And I wish it was that simple. It sounds very appealing, but when we can carefully consider the solutions that critical theory offers, I believe it does way more harm then it does good. So by looking at six popular, but I think deeply flawed sayings, it will draw light to that. So first of all, jump in with both feet. People of color in the United States are oppressed. Ever heard that? I hear it all the time, I read it all the time. It's being drilled into us. People of color in the United States are oppressed to the fact that how can you argue with it? It's am I you know? It just seems like it's out, it's thrown out there as a fact. And yup, uh, if if you're not white in our culture at least, you are oppressed. That's certainly indication I get, and a lot of people uh, fall for that. A lot of people agree with that, and it's part of that is because of the narrative that we are f- fed selectively. And I know that you're aware that our news groups feed us selective narratives so that we will come on board and look at the world and look at things and problems and solutions as they do. Critical theory defines the word oppressed different than the way we find, define the word oppressed. And that's where it gets very, very tricky. And it also defines the word oppressed differently than the way the Scriptures define the word oppressed. So let's just dive into this a little bit. When Solomon talks about justice and oppression, when Scripture talks about justice or oppression, we're talking about very concrete things. We're talking about cruel acts, uh, things that you actually do. They're observable. There's a difference between right and wrong, and these are wrong things. So a proper definition is, of oppression would be the exercise of authority or power in a burdensome, cruel, or unjust manner. A situation in which people are governed in an unfair and cruel way and prevented from having opportunities and freedom. That's a proper understanding of what oppression is. And that is a definition that Scripture shares as well. I'll give you a couple scriptural examples. Isaiah 50, by the way, the Bible is very against injustice and oppression. Very against it. And so it's, there's, you don't have to go far at all to find anything that God says about oppression and injustice. Isaiah 58.6 Is not this the fact that I chose? Is this not the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? So here the oppression is associated with wickedness and bondage. People are being held in in concrete bondage here. And they're, they're referring to actual acts of cruelty. Gets even more specific in Ezekiel chapter 18. Where Ezekiel contrasts wickedness and righteousness or justice and injustice. Gives us concrete examples to help us understand what God's talking about. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, so no idol worshiping, that's not a good thing, right thing to do. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife or, uh, I'll skip that part, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge. So if he's made an agreement with somebody, he keeps his word, he keeps his financial agreements, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment rather than than drooling over nakedness. A righteous person knows what to do and covers it. Does not lend at interest or take any profit. Doesn't take advantage of the poor. This happens in our modern day society with our different credit systems and so forth. Take advantage of the poor. Doesn't do that, but executes true justice between man and man. Walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So you have, um, Scripture is able to give very definitive examples of justice and injustice because it's based on God's word. It's based on the statutes that God has given us where he, he he shines the light on um, light and darkness and the difference of it. And so you can call a person one thing or the other or a concrete act one thing or the other because it's something that you do. Perhaps the clearest example, as we're in the Christmas season, of injustice and oppression is found in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 7-8. through 8, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So these are concrete things that we know well that happened to Christ. He was falsely accused. People lied about him. There were false witnesses that came. There was a false courtroom set up. False judgments were made. Sentences of death were given. He was he was imprisoned, he was tried, he was beaten, and he was unjustly sentenced to the death of crucifixion. Everything about that was wrong. Now of course God used it to save the sinners that would be willing to repent of these kind of acts, but everything about that was unjust and oppressive. That's not the perspective that we are subtly being fed today. According to um, a lot of the, uh, the the information that we're given today, there are lots of groups that fall under this definition of being oppressed, and a lot of those groups are in fact not being oppressed. But this statement holds when the idea that there's a a people group that every person is in that group is being oppressed. Now that happens. And in the Bible, there there are examples of that. And in our own history, there are examples of that. And it's absolutely wrong. There are concrete examples of that. Uh, You think in the past, for instance, of our history of slavery and Jim Crow laws, where there were people groups, the whole people group, some more than others, but they were, as a people, absolutely uh, in a situation of injustice and oppression and bondage. And that was wrong. In In the Old Testament, you see... Where there was a time in Israel's history where they were taken into bondage uh, by the Egyptians. Uh, Genocide was taking place in order to calm the the growing population. So they were under this oppressive yoke and they were being pushed back and controlled. That is a concrete example that's in line with the scripture's understanding of what it means to be oppressed. Uh, Today, there are individuals in our country where this is certainly true. There are small groups where this is certainly true. But there are not entire people groups that are literally being, or minority groups that are literally as universally or unilaterally being oppressed in this. But you wouldn't know that by listening to the voices of today's media. The widespread so the above statement of oppression is convincing in the sense that it seems to be so inclusive with people. But what happens when you get into this kind of definition of oppression with the critical theory is it's not concrete acts of oppression. It becomes more subtle things like attitudes or systems that are in place that seem to be Oppressive forces of power that give others an advantage over others. And they're not things that you can always, if there's things that you can put your finger on, then that's an injustice. But if there are more subtleties and vague attitudes, then it, then it becomes more about feelings and, and internal judgments and things that aren't concrete. And that's what causes so much division in a society. A whole system of vague uh, vague operations uh, that results in some people feeling like they're in bondage. So fast forwarding, how does this apply to the church? Well, based on this definition that if somebody feels oppressed or thinks that there's somebody uh, over them pushing them down, then they fall into that group of being an oppressed people group. The Where the church comes into it, is that because we have certain beliefs based on Scripture of what's right and wrong, if we speak out about these things, if we say, so for instance, if we say um, homosexuality, according to Scripture, is not a wholesome thing, and it's really not good for society, whereas our society would beg to differ and say, no, we need to be freed in this area of our lives because we're held in bondage under this Christian belief of homosexuality being uh, improper. We need to be set free from that. So what happens is if, if believers or any group challenges some of these theories, then we get put in the crosshairs as being a part of the problem. And that's that is a problem because we are planted here by God to help to be light in darkness. And when our voices are shut down as no you're the oppressor you are you are not helping but you are hurting this theory or you're hurting how we're the solutions that we are applying to try to fix society that becomes a a problem to our church because and to believers because we are to be a voice and a witness uh, to Jesus Christ now there are to be fair there are um There is oppression. We know that. It it exists in our society. There's bullying. It's terrible. You can read the headlines about these things as well. But there's not this unilateral idea that every minority group is oppressed. There are people, there are LGBTQ that actually have good rapport with the church and feel loved by the church. There are lots of minority groups that would stay the same. I'm not oppressed at all. I have a great relationship with with believers in the church. We don't agree on everything, but we have a respectful mutual relationship. You would never know that from reading today's media. So I think that I, what I hope would take place is that um, so a little, at least a few light bulbs will go off, and yeah, now I think I see why it's a little bit confusion, confusing. though so what happens, it gets so confusing that, um, and we will look at it in our next uh, sermon, but Even guilt is transferred into onto people, and you are considered oppressive because something that your ancestors have done. There are kids in class taught social theory, uh, white people that walk away feeling terribly guilty just for being white, and apologize to their class for being white because this theory. Puts people in groups and divides people according to races and power. And so there are, you see the result of this. It's very divisive. It's destructive. If it was helpful and if it was true and it was right, it would be something to get on board with. But it has, it conflicts with Scripture. So before I close, let me just mention the remaining say, um, sayings that we will tackle so you can squirm even more. Justice is part of the gospel. Is that right? Straight white males need to listen. Whiteness is wickedness. There can be no reconciliation without justice. That is within the church. We cannot reconcile with any people group. Any oppressed group. Unless there is some kind of recompense that takes place. And lastly Christianity is about liberation from oppression. Sounds great. Is it true? I think what we'll find is when we carry out these thoughts like Solomon does so well, he carries it out to its logical end, we will see that it does more harm than good. It has already destroyed um, bad ideas, result in bad consequences. It's destroyed families, it's destroyed societies, schools, school boards, and it has already destroyed churches with disunity. And people get on board with things and they get compassionate about things and lose sight of the doctrine of the unity of Christ and the bond of peace that we have in Jesus Christ. So we all want justice and we should want justice. But only God can rightly define it. and And God has modeled it in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And I believe only God can rightly lead us in it. God shows us what's broken. God tells us how to fix it. And He uses broken vessels. He uses broken vessels to fix what needs to be broken. Let me close with God's Word and hear this from Proverbs again. A wise man, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's a concrete way that we can build on the rock and wrap our minds around what's going on in our society and what we can do about it. We do it by heeding the voice of God for which there is no substitute. Appreciate you hanging with me. May God bless the preaching of the word and what a privilege it is now we can come and...